Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Michael Roman. Michael led a charge on Bavaria's baggage train in the Battle of Zeusmarschhausen, enriching himself and ruining Maximilian of Bavaria in the process. Good pillaging, Michael. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or there's that link in the description below. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 81, our penultimate episode of the Thirty Years' War. Last time we made significant progress detailing how the final decisions of the peacemakers were arrived at. Cardinal Matzerin, we saw, tended to flitter between determinately pacific and risk-averse to holding out in the face of opposition. But it was in the case of German princes that the initiative was truly seized. In the teeth of intrigue from the Swedish and the Emperor, all moderate Germans had apparently decided enough was enough, and they had formulated a religious settlement in March 1648. As we know that the year of peacemaking was at hand, we probably expect all involved to get down to the practice of making that peace of Westphalia already, but as with other matters, it wasn't so simple. Several prickly issues still had to be addressed, And there remained a surprisingly active battlefield, where fortunes could potentially be made, reverses affected, and leverage gained. What were the potentates to do other than hope that, as they dallied in Munster and Osnabrück, the soldiers would vindicate their tactics and seize a victory? Well, the final year of the war, it seemed, was refusing to go quietly, and now it's time we examined its fleeting moments as I take you all to 1648. The end of the war between the Dutch Republic and Spain brought to an end, in turn, eight decades of intermittent war in Europe and across the New World. The conflict had represented the core of Spain's military commitment, and it had compelled her rivals to take advantage of her distraction. Let's not forget that at one point in the 1590s, Spain was at war with England, France and the Dutch all at once. No state, however powerful, could sustain such a conflict for long. So it was that King Philip IV, likely with a mixture of relief and sadness, consented to officially release the Dutch Republic and recognise its independence. In the first article of the Peace of Munster, which made all this official, Philip IV recognised that the Lord States General of the United Provinces and the respective provinces thereof, with all their associated territories, towns and dependent lands, 
are free and sovereign states, provinces and lands, unto which, as unto their aforesaid associated territories, towns and dependent lands, he, the Lord King, makes no pretension, nor shall his heirs and successors for themselves, either nor hereafter, evermore make any pretension thereunto. Through this wordy, perhaps even anticlimactic statement, King Philip IV effectively absolved himself of the war which had so animated and frustrated his father and grandfather. It seemed Europe could breathe a sigh of relief at the conclusion of this ruinous war, but in fact, Europe was still attempting to catch its breath. Even within the very articles of the Peace of Munster, Philip referred to himself as the King of Castile, Aragon, Catalonia and Portugal. These two latter claims were then being feverishly disputed by Spain's enemies, and they served as something of a reminder that even while war was ending in some places, it was destined to continue in others. In Catalonia and in Portugal, two peoples agitated for their freedom from Philip IV's yoke with mixed fortunes. Due to a combination of factors, including the departure of the Dutch and the eruption of the Fronde Revolt in France, which we'll get to, Cardinal Mazarin found he had precious little to spare for Catalonia, and by 1653, to fast forward a bit, the region would be back under Spanish control. Portugal's fate was somewhat different, though, because it was in the awkward position of being in a state of war with the Dutch in the New World and with Spain all over the world. Now that the Dutch had made peace with Spain, surely this meant the Dutch would devote more attention to the colonial conflict with Portugal. And in fact, if we'll remember back to a previous episode, in 1648, an expedition to Brazil, which Holland had promised to Zealand as the price for consenting to the Peace of Munster, arrived off the coast of Pernambuco in Brazil. The expedition was ill-fated, but the message was still received loud and clear. The equally troubling other side of this dilemma was that Spain would turn its attentions to Portugal in Europe now that the Dutch were appeased. This prospect became particularly acute once the Catalans had been defeated. King John of Portugal thus instructed his ambassadors to cleave to the French alliance at all costs, so long as France maintained its armed struggle with Spain. There could be no question of Philip turning his full attention in Europe against Portugal. Should France and Spain conclude a separate peace without Portugal, though, the consequences for Portuguese independence could be dire. In the event, this is what happened. After making much noise about solidarity with their Portuguese ally, Mazarin decided to abandon that ally once it became convenient, all the way into the future in 1659. To King John's relief, though, Portugal was not reconquered like Catalonia. Portugal itself held out for another decade, and it concluded peace with the Dutch in 1663, and finally with Spain in 1668. The French had mixed feelings about the early exit of the Dutch from the war. On the one hand, it violated the terms of their treaty from 1644, which actually compelled both powers to make peace together. But on the other... Mazarin could not afford to apportion blame to the Dutch, who had warned him repeatedly within the recent months that they planned on ending the conflict, and if France wanted to be included in this peace treaty, then she had to fall in line and compromise. But Mazarin found that compromise was pretty difficult over the matter of Lorraine, and it soon became apparent that the war with Spain 
had lost some of its sheen. It seemed like years since French arms had won any signal triumphs against its Spanish foe. Was Spain not supposed to be collapsing under the weight of its revolts and failures? Perhaps if France was able to focus solely on Spain and not keep getting pulled into the conflict in Germany, then she'd be able to focus her superiority to gradually wear down Madrid. This granted a new urgency to the negotiations in Munster, but it also moved Mazarin to demand a victory from Marshal Turenne, which would shore up France's negotiating position. Mazarin initially thought that Turenne might get such a victory in the Spanish Netherlands, after the defection of those Germans in spring momentarily reduced his options, Turenne recovered sufficiently by the end of 1647, but he missed his chance to strike before the Dutch had pieced out. Just as the war with the Dutch was concluded, the revolt in Naples was crushed, and Spain seemed to enjoy something of an unlikely resurgence. The strategic situation in 1647 was therefore far from favourable for Mazarin, and this is before one considers the fact that the French army was in tatters, ill-fed and demoralised, according to Peter H. Wilson. France's prospects for success would depend upon the Swedes, who would once again be expected to carry the majority of their responsibilities in Germany. For the best results, Marshal Turenne would have to rendezvous with his Swedish counterpart, Field Marshal Gustav Wrangel. If this could be arranged the emperor would surely be forced to the peace table, and Mazarin could focus all his energies on bringing Spain low. In early 1648 then, as the negotiations over the religious settlement were entering a crucial phase, the French and Swedes were preparing for what ended up being their final campaign together. As 1648 dawned, Sweden possessed an impressive 63,000 soldiers under their banner, but this high number did not translate particularly well onto the field. The reason for this was that Sweden was holding on to a great deal of territory, and the Baltic required a full third of these soldiers to serve as a garrison and protect against a potential attack from Poland. Other forces were dotted around Franconia, Thuringia, Silesia and Moravia in case the Imperial Army tried to break through there. By the time all such issues were considered, in other words, Marshal Wrangel had at his fingertips just 12,500 cavalry and 6,000 infantry. This brings us to another important point. Unlike the earlier phase of the war, cavalry by now, by the end of it, had occupied the pride of place within the army. The mobility of the horse recommended it to commanders who often marched across burnt territory and the negotiators at Westphalia, who demanded quick returns, which they could harness for leverage, also seemed to be fonder of the potential that cavalry could bring to bear. The Swedish army as a whole contained a greater proportion of Swedish conscripts than before, with 18,000 out of the 63,000 consisting of Swedes, largely because Oxenstierna did not feel he could trust the Germans as wholly as before. Facing down Turenne and Wrangel was the commander of the Imperials, Melander, who had 14,000 Imperials and 10,000 Bavarians under his command. Melander's army of 24,000 was similarly tasked with defending certain towns and bridgeheads, and he lacked the flexibility to recruit from further German lands, since many of these now contained a smaller Swedish force. 
Turin, for his part, only contributed 6,000 men to the campaign, crossing at Mines in mid-February 1648. So, while Melander managed to escape potential pincer attack by the Allies, he was powerless to stop them seizing several towns along the River Mine. Before long, the Allies had crossed the River Mine and spilled into Franconia, bringing their force to Maximilian's doorstep once again. The mood in the Allied camp was not entirely friendly, though, as disagreements over the pursuit of the war were made more bitter by the defection of many of Turenne's German units to the Swedes in the previous year. But, to give him credit, Gustav Rangel did not seem unduly phased by the tension. He had his own plans for the Empire, and he believed that the best results in terms of pressure and plunder could be found by going back to where it had all begun, Bohemia. The idea of launching a final raid into Bohemia to pile as much pressure on as possible had been at the forefront of Wrangel's mind for a while, but setbacks, including the withdrawal of the French subsidy the previous spring, had hampered his plans. Now that Melander was unable to stop him, though, Wrangel believed the moment had come to strike. He moved away from Turin, towards Bohemia's western border, and after considering his prospects, he came to the conclusion that once again, the time was just not quite right yet for a Bohemian invasion, so he turned back to link up with Turin. Keep this decision in mind, though, for our final episode, and we'll see what Wrangel decides to do with this Bohemian decision. For now, though, it seemed almost obvious that removing Bavaria once and for all was the best thing he could do for the Franco-Swedish war effort. And if everything went well there, they could follow up that campaign by invading Austria along the Danube. With these strategic goals somewhat hammered out, at 7am on the morning of the 17th of May 1648, the Franco-Swedish-German army caught up with Melanders at Zeusmarshausen, near Augsburg, and after a short exchange, Melander was killed. Imperial and Bavarian losses were otherwise fairly minimal, but the Bavarian baggage was lost, the overall commander was killed, and morale was now at an all-time low. Bavaria's forces, such as they were, withdrew across the River Lech to Ingolstadt, where Count Tilly, if you remember him, had died in 1632. But the Imperials, their ally, essentially disintegrated in the retreat. Only 5,000 effective soldiers remained intact under the Emperor's command after Zeus Marshausen. It seemed that the brittle hold which the Emperor maintained was finally breaking apart. Maximilian's army fared little better, despite its escape. Morale was so low, and orders so confused thanks to the on-again, off-again French relationship, that the Bavarian army also began to desert in droves. By the 3rd of June 1648, the Bavarian commander was arrested due to his failures to stem these troubling tides, and Maximilian relentlessly doubled down on punishing other equally unfaithful subjects. Commanders of minor towns who surrendered without a fight to the enemy were ordered hanged, but this was somewhat hypocritical of the Bavarian elector, since Maximilian had followed his subjects in a retreat to Salzburg, in the far southeast of Bavaria, where the worst excesses of the coming invasion could hopefully be avoided. Maximilian would be safe, but the rest of his duchy was not so lucky. 
Although his former enemy Jan van Werth, last seen defecting to the Imperials with a Bavarian price on his head, was welcomed back into the Bavarian command with 6,000 Imperial reinforcements, these were insufficient to stop Turenne and Wrangel from plundering Bavaria mercilessly with their army of 24,000. From now until the final peace was signed, Maximilian of Bavaria was effectively forced to watch helplessly as his homeland burned. As the armies marched, the Swedish plenipotentiary Johan Oxenstierna sought to tackle perhaps the prickliest of Sweden's demands at Osnabrück, the achievement of guaranteed pay for Sweden's army, to be supplied by the German estates. In a similar case to the religious settlement, the objections of the emperor, who wished to discuss the question of amnesty for former rebels first, was overcome by the initiatives of the estates and free city representatives. Large sums of money based on the size of the Swedish army were proposed, with Johan Oxenstierna originally pushing for 20 million thalers, but settling for 5 million. Goes without saying that the issue was extremely inflammatory and difficult to traverse. This was why it had been postponed by Sweden until the last moment. If the Swedes could get no money to pay their soldiers, then these unpaid tens of thousands might rampage across Germany, blackening Sweden's name and alienating Sweden from Germany itself. Sweden clearly didn't have the resources to sustain or pay such a large army. This was illustrated by her dependence upon the French subsidies from the beginning and increasingly orders to live off the land. If the war ended before these wages could be settled, then the French subsidy and the opportunities for plunder would both vanish and Sweden would be left with an impossible bill and an anxious multitude of hostile soldiers. The only chance to satisfy the soldiers was thus to wrest the monies from the Germans as part of a peace deal, but the results of this could be explosive. You might be wondering, why should the German princes have to pay for the wages of Swedish soldiers? In fact, so desperate were most of these princes and minor and major estates for peace that the issue wasn't as controversial as we might have expected. We should also remember a large proportion of this Swedish army were actually Germans and would have wanted to return home with their wage paid. On the other hand, though, Oxenstierna had to tread very carefully, as he quickly learned when the elector of Saxony became so offended by Swedish efforts to increase the bill and make German land serve as collateral, that that Saxon sent the emperor a personal note of protest. Was Saxony about to re-enter the war? Well, not quite, but the point had still been made. Over the summer of 1648, concluding on the 10th of July, an agreement was finally reached. Sweden's infamously underpaid multinational army would be appeased with an immediate cash grant of 1.8 million thalers right away, while 1.2 million would be held in reserve. The remaining 2 million thalers would be raised and paid within two years after the conclusion of the peace. The Swedish Chancellor could breathe a sigh of relief. There would be no rampaging Swedish army in the empire after all. In fact, it seemed like such a great idea that Maximilian of Bavaria, Hesse Castle and even the Emperor tried to seek some form of payment for their own soldiery. But the estates didn't possess an infinite money pit. They determined that the Austrian and Bavarian circles should pay the debts of the Emperor and Maximilian respectively, but they also ruled that those imperial circles 
should bear no responsibility for the Swedish bill, which was certainly a significant concession. These developments told a fascinating story about the resilience and determination of the German estates, who acted in unison against the stronger individual powers like Bavaria, Sweden and the Emperor. This strategy granted a voice to those smaller German powers who could afford to send a representative to Westphalia, but on one issue, even the estates expected to have to tread carefully. The final question outstanding for the peacemakers, as the summer gave way to autumn, was that of amnesty. Isaac Volmar, the emperor's lead negotiator, had once proclaimed that permitting the bohemian exiles to return was the equivalent of placing 30,000 rebels in the Habsburg lands. It would be intolerable, and Volmar was anxious to avoid a compromise where so many had developed already. It was important for the sake of Ferdinand III's authority that he did not relent on this issue, but fortunately for him, the Swedes proved less enthusiastic than before when it came to discussing it. Amnesty was an issue they identified with, since many rebels and exiles fought for Sweden, but much like France would abandon Portugal for the sake of peace with Spain in 1659, the Swedes were willing to abandon these rebels in return for a limited amnesty if it meant that the war would just freak an end already. A new date of 1630 was set. Any land lost by rebels before that date was gone forever, and this was as far as the emperor was willing to go. In the last few days of July 1648, this was agreed. The final obstacle to peace had been overcome. Could the negotiators now rejoice? In fact, the path to peace was paved with a few more bumps, most taking place on the battlefield. On the night of the 25th to 26th of July, for instance, the Swedes finally managed it, and through a combination of ingenuity and conspiracy, broke down the doors into Prague. The storm of plunder and chaos which followed was destined to last until the peace was signed. Not great if you're a resident of Prague, but it also placed an acutely troubling exclamation point upon the negotiations. If Ferdinand didn't make peace soon, there might not be much left of his hereditary lands to rule over. As before, though, the Thirty Years' War hinged on more than just one theatre of war. In France, a brand new campaign was unfolding with a terrifying ferocity that took Cardinal Mazarin completely off guard. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An analysis of French fortunes in the Thirty Years' War seems to contain two very distinct threads. On the one hand, France evidently won its war against Spain, expanded its race to the Rhine by taking Alsace, and generally re-established its position of predominance following the ruinous wars of religion. On the other hand, though, French gains were not nearly as impressive as we may have expected, considering Spain's weakness. Mazarin was forced to relent on Richelieu's aim to destroy the Habsburgs altogether by making a separate peace with each branch of the family a decade apart. Above all, though, one cannot deny that those victories and gains which France did enjoy were bought at an enormous expense. This was seen most notably in the near collapse of the Regency regime of Louis XIV, as revolts spread among various influential and powerful French persons until the young king's own relatives were implicated. Louis de Bourbon, also known as the Grand Condé, was the victor at the Battles of Rocroi in May 1643 and of Lens in August 1648, and counted himself among the Princes of the Blood. Yet, Louis de Bourbon was among the most high-profile of those to defect, even fighting for the Spanish against his king as he did so. Too often, one is drawn to the persons of Richelieu, Mazarin and Louis XIV, and we may be led to believe that French domination over its neighbours and rivals was painless, natural or inevitable. Well, France definitely enjoyed a great preponderance in resources, in manpower, in terms of its tax base and in productivity than any of its direct opponents in Western Europe. It was while the effort was made to harness these advantages, though, that the serious problems for Cardinal Mazarin truly began. Furthermore, the disappointing returns on the battlefield for France between 1646 to 48 may have undermined French negotiating power at Westphalia, but a far more danger to this power was the eruption of the Fronde, that civic and societal revolt which ripped through France and very nearly killed Louis XIV's reign in its cradle. The disaster actually began in an atmosphere of triumph. The aforementioned Battle of Lens on the 20th of August 1648 represented one of the final occasions where French arms succeeded in the wider Thirty Years' War. The Spanish, under the command of Leopold William, the Emperor's brother, had staked his fortunes on a daring invasion of France from Flanders, as had been attempted twelve years before in 1636, but this time Condé was ready and he marched his army from Catalonia to meet him. The victory didn't just add to Condé's legend, it also provided Mazarin with a much-needed boost to his personal prestige which had been waning thanks to the disappointing returns from the war. Rather than rest on his laurels, though, or use Lens as a bargaining chip for the negotiations with either the Emperor or Spain, Mazarin sought to take the opportunity to arrest some political opponents. It proved a fatal misstep, and riots erupted in Paris, which were to prove fertile ground for the Fronde Revolt, which emerged from them. The Fronde, wrote the historian Geoffrey Treasure, 
was the culmination, violent, widespread and confused, of many conflicts, the expression of many grievances, corporate and individual, the reaction to monarchy's absolutist trend and wartime financial expedients. In its first paroxysms and spreading effects, it empowered the institutions and interests which the monarchy had struggled to subdue. In one aspect, it was the greatest in the line of anti-physical revolts. In another, the constitutional, a set of claims, never reduced to a single programme, but amounting to several alternative visions of government. Most dangerous to the crown was the determination of powerful nobles to recover their traditional place in council, and more realistically, in the province, where they had a territorial stake and wanted the authority and patronage associated with the potent office of governor. They wanted not so much to reduce monarchy's powers as to share in its resources. The Fronde also added to the mid-17th century's image of hellish disruption, which frequently leaked into the language used by pamphleteers, as if to reflect this state of affairs, revolution, as a term, first began to enter into the lexicon of the French language between 1649 to 53. Considering their own experiences, not to mention the fate of the Stuart family next door in Britain at this time, it's not too surprising. Initially powered by the Parlement of Paris, in its second year the Fronde drew in French nobility who participated depending on factors as broad as their corporate loyalties, ties of marriage and patronage. Mazarin was initially in grave danger from the nobility, which he had attempted to keep at arm's length for so long, but against such overwhelming odds, the wily cardinal clung to power. Animated by their claims to be fighting against the unsuitable regency led by Mazarin and Anne of Austria, these arguments were outmaneuvered when Louis XIV was, conveniently early, declared to be in his majority in 1651. From that point, even if the political passions receded, the religious fervour which had attached itself to the conflict did not. Now, the eruption of revolt in France was hardly a new feature. Richelieu had rallied against reluctant taxpayers and the more dangerous Huguenots during much of his tenure in office. Mazarin, for his part, had dealt with judges anxious to protect their privileges and nobility concerned that the creeping absolutism of Louis XIV's regime might undermine their local authority. The Fronde can be seen as the culmination of these concerns. As we've seen, it was akin to a jack-of-all-trades revolt, and a banner was available for anyone with a grievance against Mazarin. This struggle for the future of France and its regency was serious, but when combined with France's existing wars with the Emperor and Spain, a repetition of the opening years of the war where France suffered invasion on all sides again was possible, so long as it was so internally divided. And so it was essential that Mazarin meet these threats head-on. If the King of Spain would not bend, he would at least conclude peace with the Emperor. It was imperative this was done before the worst excesses of the Fronde became known. It was one thing to complain of a tax revolt, quite another to host a battle for the survival of one's regime. Mazarin could not expect the emperor to agree to a favourable peace if that emperor saw that the Fronde was becoming a crisis. Mercifully for him, the sinister scenes of defection by the nobility and the crumbling authority of the crown were not visible for another two years. 
Much like he had been averse to risking French fortunes on the battlefield, however, Mazarin was unwilling to bet that the Fronde would not escalate further and undermine the French negotiating position. The final agreements on satisfaction, amnesty, religion and many more matters besides had been concluded, but a curious period of wait and see now seemed to set in. Mazarin anxiously looked on, but he would be rescued from infamy by an unlikely source, the Swedish army. As the Parisians erected their barricades and Mazarin's authority crumbled, Swedish and German soldiers were returning to the scene of the crime, Prague, where more than 30 years before, the contagion of war had first escaped Pandora's box. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends. The last episode of this series. How is that possible? Time has flied since we first really started this in August 2019. Or maybe it was September. To be honest, that was the early part of the PhD and it's kind of all been a blur. Jeez, it was before COVID for crying out loud. But we've made it this far and I'm really looking forward to concluding this massive series next time. So I hope you'll join me then. I should just say, if you haven't already, make sure to listen to that collab episode me and Tom Daly did, where we both rant about things that really bother us. Tom rants about America, and I rant about Brexit. So if that sounds good to you, and if you want to hear why Brexit bothers me as an Irish person so much, that's where you should go. In the future, I hope we'll be doing more episodes, especially because there'll be a bit of dead air while I finalise this PhD thesis, which is due on the 30th of September, and when we've run out of 30 Years War episodes. So there might be a short intermission break period, but I won't be vanishing from the face of the earth. And of course, you can find me in the usual places on Twitter at WDF Podcast or in the Facebook group where we like to have discussions and declare war on each other. Thanks again so much, history friends. This has been the penultimate episode of the 30 Years' War. I am your host, Zach Twomley. You're a wonderful history friend, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.